In your Bibles in 1 Corinthians chapter 14, our passage reads this way, starting in verse 34. Let the women keep silent in the churches, for they're not permitted to speak, but let them, be, let them subject themselves, just as the law also says. And if they desire to learn anything, let them ask their own husbands at home, for it's improper for a woman to speak at church. Was it from you that the word of God first went forth, or has it come to you only? If anyone thinks he's a prophet or spiritual, let him recognize that the things which I write to you are the Lord's commandment. But if anyone does not recognize this, he's not recognized. Therefore, my brethren, desire earnestly to prophesy and do not forbid speaking in tongues. But let all things be done properly and in an orderly manner. Verse 34 again, let the women keep silent in the churches for they're not permitted to speak. I have a new policy. It's something that I'm going to start this week and maybe do it as, as time goes on. But we actually have several seminary students and a seminary professor here as well. And in order to train them for the ministry, I'd like now to turn this, this, this passage over to Dan Enright and have him cover it. He's not here. Well, next on the list would be Will Johnson. So, Will, if you'll come up. I jest, of course. I do jest. These verses... These verses require a great deal of explanation, not an attempt to explain them away, as is the case far too much of the time in our Christian culture today. You would be amazed at some of the hoops that people jump through in order to explain away this passage if they decide to cover it at all. One of the most popular ways to try to explain it away is to say it's not actually in the text at all, that there's a textual problem here it wasn't part of the original text. It was a later addition to the text. Problem is, there is very scant evidence for that view. And it's rejected by the overwhelming majority of textual scholars. One such scholar, J.M. Ross, concluded, We are bound to accept the unanimous testimony of the manuscripts, however deeply we may regret that Paul expressed this opinion. Did you hear that? We are bound to accept the unanimous testimony of the manuscripts, however deeply we may regret that Paul expressed this opinion. Really? If he was joking, it would have been one thing. But this was written in a scholarly context, a scholarly work. Textual critics, by the way, no offense intended, are not necessarily known for their sense of humor in their writings. He might as well have said, however deeply we regret that the Holy Spirit... Speaking through the Apostle Paul expressed this opinion. One wonders who he is attempting to placate with a statement like that. Personally, I've never found it beneficial to apologize for God in any way, shape, or form. It's our responsibility to come to an understanding of what God is saying here, what it means, and then to humbly submit ourselves to it, wherever it falls, to humbly Submit ourselves to what has been written, what has been disclosed. So let's do just that. We should remember at the outset that these verses are part of a larger context that speaks with respect to order in Christian worship. We concluded the previous lesson with these three points of application for ourselves. First, we must expel all that reeks of selfishness from our lives. We can't function in selfishness all week long 
and then expect to come together on Sunday morning and turn love on like a light switch. It doesn't work that way. It's our calling to pursue love individually throughout the week and then continue pursuing that love during periods of corporate worship. The second thing, we must remember that there is no such thing as me-centered, God-honoring worship. The two don't go together. And third, God-honoring worship will be focused upon God with a view toward the building up of all of those in attendance and take place in an environment of harmony and structure, not confusion and disorder. Specifically, with respect to the Corinthian situation in verses 20 through 40 of 1 Corinthians 14, Paul stresses that first, tongues were assigned. Remember, we've been discussing this. Tongues were assigned primarily to unbelieving Israel that judgment was on the way. It should have been motivation for rebellious Jews to repent and place their faith in Jesus Christ. Speaking in an unintelligible language while praying to God did not benefit all people present and should therefore be avoided in corporate worship. We learn that from the first part of chapter 14. Prophecy, on the other hand, was a gift given by God to edify believers. It proclaimed God's truth, or scriptural truth before it was written down, if you prefer, and therefore was beneficial to all and should be prioritized. Prophecy was beneficial to unbelievers in the worship service, as they would witness this and realize that God was at work in this place. So whether it was the legitimate function of tongues or prophecy, the loving thing to do was to function under these gifts in an orderly way, not with everybody speaking at the same time. Now that's going to be key to understanding this passage. Not with everybody speaking at the same time, and tongues should not be exercised without an interpreter present. All this we've considered before. Now how do these concepts fit into the final verses here. When Paul says, let the women keep silent, the Greek verb is segao, which means to stop speaking or to refrain from speaking. Given what's already been presented in chapter 11 concerning women praying and prophesying, remember that whole discussion about whether they should do so with their heads covered or uncovered, it cannot mean, listen carefully, this verse cannot mean that women are not to speak at all in a church setting. He's already covered that in chapter 11. In 11.5, Paul certainly implies it was the norm for women both to pray and prophesy in church, but that they needed to do so in submission to a legitimately delegated leadership structure. Several years back, a gentleman respectfully challenged our custom of having women pray at our weekly prayer meetings. And he used this verse, 1 Corinthians chapter 14, verse 34, to validate his point. Let the women keep silent in churches, he told me. And I said, okay. And then he said, well, you have women pray at the prayer meetings. Well, as we dialogued, he admitted that he had no problem with women singing in church or greeting at the door or making an announcement and when I pointed out to him that in the context, the admonition for women to keep silent in church could not be interpreted as total silence, 
given what had already been reported in chapter 11, then he relented. You see, that's why we take a book or a letter and we go from the beginning to the end. You don't start in the middle. Because you blow the context when you start in the middle of a passage. We, got, we have to begin at the beginning of the book and go to the end of the book. You would not read a Daniel Silva novel and start at the end or skip around the chapters. It would make no sense to you. I see sometimes people do that with textbooks or reference books. But we don't do that normally with literature. We begin at the beginning and we move through to the end. And if we do that, we've already seen He's already established that, yes, women do speak in churches. So when he gets to this verse, we have to interpret this with the understanding or with the grid that he's already given us. So I make no apology at all for women praying in our prayer meetings. Now, we did have one woman one time that tend to sermonize in prayer. You know what I'm talking about, don't you? (laughs) Pastors do it all the time when they get to the, the closing prayer and they've forgotten one of the points, and you can tell when it happens. Because then you make that closing point in your prayer. It's not really a prayer anymore. It's a sermon. That's probably not the best thing to do. But I don't make any apology at all for having women pray. It's a biblical norm. If it doesn't mean total silence then, if women are allowed to sing and to pray and encourage and many other things, then what does it mean to keep silent in church? Well, again, we have to look at the immediate context. And it does give us a clue, a strong clue. Paul is stressing the priority of prophecy over tongues because prophecy edifies all, whereas the scope of edification with respect to tongues, as it was practiced then, was limited. Look back for a moment at verse 29, if you would. And let two or three prophets speak, and let the others pass judgment. Prophecy was revealing the word of God, before that word had been put into writing. And as such, when one would utter a prophecy in the first century church, and you'll recall in in previous lessons, we've seen where this is not a gift for today. This gift was superseded later on by the gift of pastor-teacher, I believe. It's no longer necessary for that reason and for the reason that we have all the word of God. We have it written down now. But when one would utter a prophecy, a discussion would follow. That's what it means when it says, let others pass judgment. Because if it wasn't in writing, nobody could go and say, well, this is where he's getting that. Or this is where he's getting that. Now, today we can. In fact, Paul encouraged the Bereans. He praised the Bereans for going back and looking up, at the time it was Old Testament scriptures, to check out everything he said. To see if what he said lines up with the word of God. And I invite you to do that too. Because the only thing I want you to listen to is something that can be validated from the Word of God. I know you're not that interested in my opinion, even though you you give a nod to it sometimes because you're so courteous. What I want you to be interested in, though, is what the Word of God says. So if there's anything I say that can't be backed up scripturally, please feel free to disregard it. You would be smart to disregard it. But how did they do that with the gift of prophecy? Because they they were speaking by definition something hadn't been written down yet. So they would have people apparently with a gift of understanding or knowledge. They would gather together and they say, okay, what Brother Bob just said makes sense because, you know, back in the Old Testament, Moses wrote this. Or while that's not written down in the Old Testament, it's certainly consistent with what the minor prophets said, although they wouldn't have called them the minor prophets. You see, so there was a discussion that would follow. It would appear that Paul is saying to the women in Corinth, 
When this discussion is taking place, you're not to issue a public challenge with respect to what has been said. You're not, if there's an argument that ensues, you're not to participate in the argument. You're to discuss the matter with your husband at home. There's also an implication later on in this passage that the person who had prophesied may very well have been the woman's own husband. That's why she wasn't to challenge him in front of everybody. She was to wait till they got home and say, I didn't quite understand that. Is that what you really meant? That's the respectful order. Now, he's talking about respect, respecting the order in a worship service. He has already, once again, going back to the concept that we cover a book from the beginning to the end, he's already talked about respecting the order in marriage. He's already talked about that. So it just makes sense when it comes to issues that are more applicational that that order should be respected. Let me put it on another level. Let me just put this right down where we can all understand it. There is no validation for a woman dressing down her husband in public at church. No validation for that at all. Now, on the other hand, I could also say there's no validation for a husband dressing down his wife at church either. But in the context here, we're not talking about husbands right now. We're talking about wives. Frankly, I believe that goes in, in a civilized marriage. I think that goes all the time. I don't believe in ever dressing down your wife in public or a wife ever dressing down her husband in public. I just think it's ugly. And guess what? It doesn't make you look any better at all. You might think you won, won your friends over when you do that, either husbands or wife, but believe me, you didn't. People walk away and say, well, I'm glad I'm not married to her. Or I'd hate to be going home with him this afternoon. So, I mean, just civility would tell us not to do that. But in this particular context, the context of a prophecy being given and a discussion to follow, which by its very nature may have been argumentative, that's the context that this phrase comes up in. Let the women keep silent in church, for they're not permitted to speak. Let them subject themselves, just as the law also says. Now, that Mosaic law, speaking about the order in a marital relationship, if they desire to learn anything, let them ask their own husbands at home, for it's improper for a woman to speak at church. Now, are you following me? In the context, in the context, the prohibition is against an argumentation with respect to the interpreta interpretation of a prophecy that has been given. The whole section has been about order and worship. And for a woman to argue with the presentation of the word in a public way interrupts God's order first for the family and then for worship. It's the husband's responsibility to lead in the family. And that leadership would be negatively affected by his wife going around him to argue a point. The husband could argue the point on her behalf, but she shouldn't argue it publicly. The term that's used in verse 35, let them ask their own husbands at home, can be stronger, actually, than just a asking of an innocent question. It's the Greek term erotao versus ep erotao. The term that's used here is the same term that's used in the Gospels where the high priest interrogated Jesus. The point is, if you want to interrogate, interrogate your own husband. Interrogate him at home. And if he can't answer it, then he has one of two choices. 
He can study it and be a good leader in the home, or he can pick up the phone, or he can shoot an email to the pastor and say, listen, I'm having a hard time answering this question. Can you help me out? That's perfectly legitimate. And then I guess there's a third option. If that still doesn't work, then, then come talk to the pastor. That's okay. That's what pastors are for. Believe it or not, we want you to understand. We want to get the message across. Sometimes you may have heard somebody say, I, don't, I mean, I'm preaching it. I, I let it out there. And if you get it, that's fine. If you don't get it, I don't care. I do care, desperately, whether you get it or not. I don't think I'm going to be evaluated at the judgment seat of Christ based upon that, thankfully. <laughs> I'm going to be evaluated at, at the intensity and the faithfulness with which I did my job. But I care desperately. <laughs> if you're a teacher of anything and you don't care whether your students learn it or not, you're not much of a teacher. I don't care whether it's mathematics or biology or engineering, whatever it is. The best teachers are always the ones that have the passion to teach, aren't they? I still remember the best teacher I ever had in elementary school. How many elementary school teachers can you give their names? Mrs. Hammond, grade 3E at William L. Cabell Elementary School in Dallas, Texas. One of the most thoughtful, caring teachers that I ever had. I assume she's with the Lord now. But she cared whether or not her students got it. Great teacher. Well, I care too. So I want you to get it one way or another. We just need to do it in an appropriate way. few years ago, there was a lady that came to our church. She doesn't come here anymore. But she challenged, she eperotaoed, to make an English word out of it. <laughs> she interrogated me. She cross-examined me after every service. And she came to every service, all three of them. Personally, as soon as I stepped down from the pulpit, and it wasn't asking for a point of clarification. That's different. She was challenging something that had been said or would make a kind suggestion of a way I could have said it much better. And, of course, I appreciate kind suggestions. And I also always love points of clarification because if you're not clear about something, then it means probably a dozen other people aren't clear about it as well. And so that's cool. That's fine. But i got to tell you what she did. If you'll forgive me for the brutality, she emasculated her husband in front of me every time she did that. He would stand behind her, a nice guy, I liked him a lot, but he would stand behind her, and he was totally emasculated, just kind of waiting for her to finish the challenge. Now, let me tell you something. It's not a good idea. It's not a good idea. This, this is free right now, because I'm not, I don't charge for marital counseling. This is free. To avoid that would help your marriage. And that goes both for husbands and wives. You don't make your husband or wife look bad in public and think there's going to be no consequences to suffer. They might not say anything, but yeah, there'll be consequences. When a wife leaves the boundaries that are set by God for worship, it's a disgrace to her and her husband. It's showing no respect for him. And I know some of you wives are smarter than your husbands. That may be unanimous in here. That's not the point. It never was the point. It has to do with the structure that God set up. Kierkegaard discussed the virtue of silence in a broader context, if I may now. He said, silence is just what is needed so that the Word of God may work its work in us. We can only hear the Word of God in silence. Let it soak in before you argue about it. I really have never thought it was a good idea to challenge any pastor or any seminary professor, for that matter, when I was in seminary, on something that was said immediately after it was said. 
Because you got to figure that the pastor or the seminary professor in that context has spent a little bit of time on the sermon before they ever get there researching it. Of course, my brother told me the other day, he says, you know, you got a pretty good gig. You work three hours a week. And he said, what do you do with the rest of your time? <laughs> I had to explain to him, there's a little bit more than that. You don't, you don't make it up on the fly. Any competent expositor is going to research and probably does know the viewpoint that you're coming at with. So, so at least take the time to think about it. Talk about it in the car on the way home or at the Lubies or wherever it is that you eat lunch. After sifting through it, then challenge all you want, please. But sift through it first. Verses 36 through 38 drive home the point that the Corinthians had no right to make up the rules as they went along. The Lord makes the rules. When we attempt to write our own rules, we're taking for ourselves something that's the prerogative of God. And while we may seek recognition in doing so, God's not going to recognize you. People may think you're cool, but God's not going to. That's why he says, was it from you that the word of God first went forth, or has it come to you only? Meaning that maybe before you challenge, and, I, and again, it's true, this is in a context with women challenging publicly, but it could go either way. But when you challenge, understand that maybe somebody else has studied it too. So take your time. That's all I'm saying. And, and Paul is saying the same thing. Was it from you that the word of God first went forth? No. Has it come to you only? No. If anyone thinks he's a prophet or spiritual. Now that goes back to the very first part of the chapter when the, the, the spiritual gifts and in, in the whole idea in Corinth was an argument over who was most spiritual in Corinth. If anyone thinks he's a prophet or spiritual, let him recognize the things which I write to you are the Lord's commandments. I didn't make that verse up about women keeping silent in church, but I'm not going to apologize for it. I just want to figure it out. I'm not going to skip it. I want to figure it out. I want to understand it, and then I want to proclaim that to you. And then I want you to understand it, and then you've got to decide what you want to do with it. But it would be a misunderstanding, as some churches do, as some silly pastors do, to tell a woman she can't say anything in church. You know what? I've never been in a church context like that where they didn't allow the women to sing. I'd be more happy to have you sing but keep your mouth shut otherwise. That's a stupid pastor. I'm sorry, it is. It's ignorant. It's abusive. You don't use the Word of God to abuse people. You explain it to them. And I hope that I've explained it to you that this was a particular context. And what you may be thinking is that we don't do prophecy anymore, so does this have a meaning for us? It does. We'll cover that in just a moment. How can we apply it today? We'll cover it in a moment. But if anyone does not recognize this, he's not recognized. So Paul's probably saying the same thing. He's probably saying, listen, this comes from God. I'm not going to apologize for a message, but it comes from God. And so we need to understand it. He restates his point concerning prophecy in verse 39. Therefore, my brethren, desire earnestly to prophesy, and do not forbid speaking in tongues. I cannot tell you how many times I've heard the last part of this verse quoted. I mean, a hundred or two, at least. Paul is telling the Corinthians not to forbid people from speaking in tongues, plural. And we see that when it's in the plural, it most likely refers to the gift as it was given on the day of Pentecost. It did have its place in the first century context. But as we've seen in earlier chapters, 
the best case that can be made is that it died out in the first couple hundred years of the church because the, the scriptures were, were written, circulated, and since the tongues were a revelatory gift, it was no longer necessary. Also, a secondary reason, Israel had been judged, AD 70. Now, I'm not saying tongues disappeared in AD 71. I think that's going too far. But the purpose for tongues, that primary purpose had been fulfilled. Now, the entire chapter is summarized in verse 40. Let all things be done properly and in an orderly manner. Once again, in the context of Christian worship. Of course, it overflows to other areas of our lives, too. It's very difficult to imagine a person that can be totally disorganized in their life and then come to church and worship in an organized way. This is speaking about church, though. The chapter began with an admonition to pursue love and ends with an explanation of how that works out in verse 40. How does it work out that we pursue love? By letting all things be done properly and in an orderly manner. Once again, after the church matured, the gifts of tongues and prophecy faded out, and the office of pastor-teacher replaced prophecy. Given that, in closing, how might we apply this passage, not just the particular admonition that's on everybody's mind today, but the entirety of this passage in today's context? How might it be applied? Well, first of all, as I said a moment ago, it's usually not the best idea to challenge a sermon immediately after the message, whether you're male or female. It's just not the best idea. Most pastors don't simply wing it when it comes to their sermons. And I'm going to assure you I don't. I don't say this in any prideful way at all. This is my responsibility. You shouldn't have me here if I, if I winged it. I've never winged a sermon. If something was taught, it's been researched, and there was a reason that it was presented in the way that it was. Now, that doesn't mean that sermons are infallible. doesn't mean that I'm infallible. Of course not. Only the Word of God is infallible. But all I'm asking for is enough respect for the pastor or whoever was in the pulpit that day to assume that homework was done before the message was presented. If, after careful reflection, you still desire to challenge or cross-examine or interrogate, then do it. But do it respectfully, and I might... Just ask you to do your own homework first. That's fine. On the other hand, there is a difference between challenging and simply asking for a point of clarification. This is done all the time. And it's not only permissible, it's welcomed. Because if you missed the point, or if I misquoted a verse or misspoke in some way, but if you missed a point, then the probability is somebody else missed it too. And your inquiry might be helpful in making sure that whoever's speaking gets it right the next time. So feel free to write or to call or to ask in person. Any good pastor wants to, you to understand what's been taught. That's why we're here. And then third, many of you, I understand, are single or widowed. Quite a few listening to my voice even today. You don't have a husband that you can ask at home, who can either answer the question or present the challenge to the pastor. In that case, your responsibility would be to think it through and then approach the pastor in the proper setting. The proper setting is not to interrupt the sermon, and of course it wouldn't be. Nobody's ever done it. I don't think anybody would, but th that's not the proper setting. That's what this passage is telling us. 
Just think it through first. And some have asked me this question specifically. Some of you have fathers or brothers that you look at for leadership. Then feel free to ask them if, you, if you'd like. And hopefully they can, they can help you along. But if that's not the case, ask. And I know that's not the case for quite a few people even here today. Feel free to ask whatever question you have. And finally, as we conclude this chapter, we should keep in mind that God-honoring worship will be focused upon God with a view toward the building up of all of those in attendance and take place in an environment of harmony and structure, not one of confusion and disorder. 